Um, have you all got your sermon notes? Um, it's, I put every time on my sermon notes, all the scriptures quoted are from the New International Version. Today, that's not true. And it's a mistake on my part. Um, I copy scriptures from the, from, on the computer from a, a website and I must have gone into another version of the scripture. So, just in case sharp ones among you noticed that and would like to come and tell me afterwards, that wasn't actually the NIV, but I know, I know. It's just only a couple of them uh, are like that. But as I say, we're, in, we're in the, still in the Christmas story and uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2. So if you'd like to turn to that uh, in your Bibles and then we'll watch the, the video.
No? Yes? Okay. All right. Good. Father God, we ask you, Lord, to help us as we come to your word again. Lord, a a story that is so familiar to us, so dear to us. Uh, Lord, we ask you to speak to us afresh, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before we look um, particularly at at the chapter, I just want to give you some little reflections about Christmas and, and, and what we do at, at, at Christmas time. It's great that Christmas is still a unique time for the church in its relationship to the community. Uh, people will still come to a carol service, but they won't come to anything else perhaps. And maybe that's sometimes because their children are taking part or there's some involvement in some way. Um, or perhaps because it represents for people Uh, something of a traditional Christmas that they don't want to let slip. You know, the world has moved on, technology has gone on at a fantastic pace and life has changed so much. And for some people it's an opportunity just to hold on to uh, something that is traditional, particularly in in the face of the rampant materialism that seems to surface at, at this time of the year. And also the nativity story has not lost its magic, has it? It's still... Uh, has that magnetism. It's a lovely story. And I think it was two or three years ago, um, a full-length feature film was made with, uh, under that title. And it went the rounds uh, of the cinemas. And just before Christmas, the BBC decided to put on the production in a series of four half-hour uh, episodes of The Nativity. I think people have had um, different reactions to that. I enjoyed it personally, even though there was some artistic license in it. I thought there were some good truths that came through. But they felt it was worth screening that, once again, the story of the nativity. But as Christians, um, we often complain about what we would say is the traditional Christmas. What we complain about is that all the elements that go to make up Christmas in this country have all been lumped together. So we have Santa, we have the reindeer, we have fairy grottos and we have a baby in a manger. And it's all kind of um, pushed into an area in people's minds which is a kind of fantasy and after all it's for the children anyway, isn't it? You know? And we complain that the truth gets hidden uh, in all this. And, um, and yet if we get the opportunity... Um, what we want to do is try and separate truth from fantasy. So when we put on our events and so on, we um, make the point of saying, actually, this is true. This is the truth that God has revealed to us about the coming of his son into the world. And even if we manage to do that, I think we still have a little bit of a problem. Why is it that uh, people are happy to come to a carol service where scriptures are read, where the nativity story is told again, I think it's by and large because it's familiar and it's comfortable for people and above all, it's non-threatening. A carol service is usually non-threatening and what is less threatening than a baby? Nobody's threatened by a baby, are they? Unless you happen to be King Herod, of course, and he was greatly threatened. And, of course, we capitalise on this. You know, we involve children, so hopefully the parents will come. And we try to make it 
as non-confrontational as possible with people um, so that they find it easy to come. We make them welcome, we make them feel at home and so on. And that's good and I'm sure that's what we need to do. But it just occurred to me as I was looking at these events once again that uh, in sending his son into the world, God was not making a warm, comforting statement to people, was he? Uh, He was confronting the sin and rebellion so deeply rooted in the human heart. That's what God had come to do, and to confront that. Now, Joseph and Mary, having gone through the period of the pregnancy and all the misunderstanding about that, and I thought the TV series brought that out well, Joseph's confusion and anger over it all, and then the wonder of the birth, and the shepherds come, which you can read about in Luke's Gospel, and they confirm exactly what the angel had said to Mary, that this is Christ the Lord, And she must have been overjoyed at that. And then we read in Luke's Gospel that Joseph and Mary and the child, they go to Jerusalem so that Jesus can be circumcised on the eighth day, which is their custom. And um, this is what we read. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he was waiting for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms, praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. It's all good news so far, isn't it? The Messiah's coming. It's going to be good news for the people. Deliver the people of Israel. Then he goes on to say, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So the message is, this son of yours is going to be controversial and he's going to reveal the secrets of people's hearts. He's going to be confrontational in his message. And the next chapter when we come to it next week is about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is there preparing the people for the coming of Jesus, then a man, of course, on the banks of the Jordan River, and he takes up the same theme. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, this Messiah, this Messiah that I'm announcing to you, He's going to divide up people, people who've got ears to hear, people who've got ears to hear and are prepared to respond to the Lord as compared with those who are not. There's going to be a a division, some confrontation that's going on. 
And Jesus' ministry, right from the beginning, the very thing, when he started his preaching, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. That wasn't a particularly comforting statement. He was saying, you can't remain as you are. You've got to change. You've got to repent. And you've got to turn to God. And a little bit later, it's even more confrontational. Of course, he says, repent or perish. That was the message. So I think we face a challenge, a huge challenge. For the people um, of Jesus' day when he was born, it was a hopeful nation. The people, because, partly because they were overrun by the Romans, they were looking for deliverance, they were looking for a better day, and they were looking for the Messiah uh, to bring that better day. And they had all God's prophetic promises to back that up. The, the ground, to some extent, was prepared although John the Baptist had to stir up the people and and refocus them on what was doing. But today, we don't have much prepared ground, do we? That people have not been to Sunday school, they've grown up and not known the stories, not known things from the Bible, it's not particularly taught in schools. And so, it's very difficult for us uh, to bring the full weight of the gospel to people unless their hearts are prepared in some ways. And what we try to do with our events and various things that we try to make contact with the community is to build a bridge that this powerful gospel, this confrontational gospel, can, can go across so that people will hear that good news, that gospel, and be saved. So I just leave that. It's just something that occurred to me. that It's, it's right that we, we, we make things easy for people to come to, but then somehow we have to find ways of building that bridge so that the full gospel can be preached to them, uh, which in itself is quite confrontational. But they need that gospel in order that they may repent and that they may be saved. Anyway, let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 2. That was just some little diversion in some respect, but I hope perhaps in some ways uh, an introduction. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Well, we know Jesus was born and laid in a manger earlier. And uh, it says after. And what we find from the story is it could be up to two years later uh, when this event happens. The family is still in Bethlehem, but now living in a house, as the video showed us. Just a little word about Bethlehem. Um, We sing, O little town of Bethlehem, and in our minds we think of it as a bit of a backwater. It wasn't very big. Um, In your notes there you'll you'll see that uh, it's reckoned to be about 1,000 people, uh, a population of about 1,000 in those days. But it was very significant in God's purposes. And uh, we find that years ago, um, Jacob had buried Rachel there. And he'd built a memorial over her grave uh, to, to her. That was very, he was one of the patriarchs. And it was there that Ruth lived uh, after she'd married Boaz. If you remember, we, a few months back we did a series on Ruth. And she was a Moabitess, but she came with her mother-in-law Naomi, settled in Israel and married Boaz. And that was in Bethlehem. And of course it was David's hometown too, David's town. And do you remember when David was on the run from Saul? He was a fugitive. He had this longing. He expressed a longing. Oh, if only I could drink from the well of Bethlehem. And some of his soldiers heard that and they went chasing off 
crossed enemy territory because it was in enemy hands by then and got this water for David. He had a longing for that. And of course there was the prophetic expectation that the son of David, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. So it's very, though small, very significant. And then we come to the visit of the Magi, sometimes called kings, no indication really that they were kings, wise men, sometimes they are called. And they were probably um, people from Persia, which uh, is uh, now modern Iran. Maybe a tribe of priests, they were teachers and instructors of the, the Persian kings, they were men of holiness and wisdom, and they were skilled in philosophy, medicine, and natural science. They look as if they were perhaps astrologers, um, finding significance in the stars. Um, they may well have been astronomers. Now, these are two fairly close words, aren't they? But astronomers are essentially scientists. They are looking at the facts. They um, look at the uh, planets and the movements and galaxies and use telescopes and the rest of it to chart the data. They don't put any significance on the data other than perhaps the historical data. But an astrologer would be someone who feels that the planets and the solar systems are all linked with the earth in some ways and there is an influence from the heavens uh, to the earth. And I guess these, these men uh, were probably um, a, a bit of both. And they studied the ordered universe and they believed that if a brilliant star suddenly appeared, then something special um, was happening on earth. And I think we have to say that these men were not quacks or just opportunities, but serious seekers of truth. They would have been people who would have gathered information from the known world to, to gather knowledge and to seek for truth. And God chose to reveal to them through their science um, that something momentous was happening on earth. And clearly they must have had knowledge, some knowledge, um, of the Jewish expectation of a coming king because they interpreted this star as the, the fact that a king had been born and he was Jewish at that. And probably they were quite wealthy in order to make such a, a journey um, from Persia or Iran um, to uh, Israel. Now, if in some ways they were astrologers, this can raise questions for Christians um, because, you know, is God giving legitimacy to astrology which he severely, sorry, severely condemns as an occult practice elsewhere in Scripture? Is there some confusion uh, here between that? Well, I believe there is a significant difference between what God was doing with these men and what we might see as modern-day uh, astrology, what we understand from that. Um, so astrology, what is it? Well, for centuries people have consulted the stars. In different civilizations, people have looked up into what we call the heavens and been absolutely amazed by it and influenced by it. And so they've consulted the stars, seeking help in making important decisions. And they expect the stars to give them guidance. They hope the stars will show them the future. It's said that we in the Western world now live in a post-modern era. These phrases may not mean an awful lot to you, but we've come out of a modern era, and the modern era was a very scientific era. 
where we began to say we don't need anything beyond science to understand the world in which we live. So science will explain everything. We're not interested in spirituality. Um, we're not interested in religion. We're only interested in science because science is the answer to everything. However, it's gone, say, full circle and we are said to be in a post-modern era where people are saying there is more to life than science. There's more to life than meets the eye. And, um, you know, in spite of being in a, in a, a, a post-modern era with, with um, a great deal of knowledge of science and the natural world, there's an increased interest in the paranormal, uh, psychic phenomena, and the most popular form of astrology, astrology um, in the form of horoscopes. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but I think most popular magazines will have a horoscope, and many newspapers will have horoscopes. And they operate uh, on the premise that heavenly bodies and celestial events determine what will happen in people's lives. That's the world view. Right? These things that are going on, um, be it your star sign or whatever, is having an influence over your life. Probably most of us would admit that maybe we looked at our horoscope once or twice in our lives. I don't know. If there's anybody here who's never looked at a horoscope, that's fine. But I guess we've all maybe been slightly inquisitive if somebody told us what our star sign was. But the fact of the matter is, even if we look at these things for fun, which we may say, well, there's, there's nothing in it really, but I just look at it for fun, um, we are in some ways assigning some value to it. But we're giving some credence to this kind of world view that says my life is being influenced possibly by those things that are moving and exist out there. So that, that would be astrology. So what's the difference? Well, just to sum up, modern astrology says your life is influenced by your star sign and the movements of the planets and through the study of these you can know the future. That's what people want. They want to know the future. What happens in the stars causing, causes events on earth? In other words, these objects and their movements have power over you. That, that, that would be a, a summation of what kind of modern popular astrology is about. But for the, the, the magi or magi, it was the reverse. And, and this is the important thing. God was revealing to them that something momentous had happened on earth and was drawing attention to it by what he made happen in heaven. The star did not appear until Jesus was born. It was not a prediction. The star was not a prediction that somebody looked at and said there's going to be a, a, a baby born. The star appeared when the baby was born. The Magi did not worship the planets they so closely followed. They worshipped the child who was more than a king. He was God himself. The fact that they worshipped they realised that he was more than the king. He was deity. Whether they fully understood what they were worshipping, I don't know. But they were, that's what they were worshipping. So that is the distinct difference. God was in control of these things. It's got nothing to do with the powers of the planets or otherwise. God had caused something wonderful to happen on earth. And he signals it uh, by this star, special star that appeared. People have looked in, into the history of, of, uh, of the universe and said, what was this? And uh, I think the best that people have come up to is said there was a conjunction of, of Jupiter and Saturn that produced a very bright light. 
To my mind, that's not particularly important. The important is the significance that, that we put on it. So there is a st- distinct difference. God is here not um, endorsing astrology as legitimate uh, means and influence in our lives. People who follow astrology are looking for a sign. You know, people want a sign, don't they? A sign that will give them some clue as to the future. What does my, what, what does my future hold? What's going to happen to me this year? You know, am I going to get a new job? Will I marry somebody this year? And so on. But the fact of the matter is, God has already given us a sign. He's made it very, very clear. God has given us a sign, and that sign is Jesus. You know, it... it and, and Jesus is all we need. This is from Luke chapter 2. The angel speaking to the shepherds. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The sign was the baby. The sign was Jesus. And then we read um, there in, in Simeon's prophecy, this child is destined to, be, to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. And what is the sign or who is the sign? It is Jesus. Jesus is the sign. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And then Paul writing uh, to Christians and talking about um, his desire for other Christians. He said, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God. People want to know mysteries. They want to know signs. They want to know something about the future. But what does Paul say? to know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So if we want to know about the future, if we want to know what's going to happen to us in the long term, where do we look? We look to Jesus, because Jesus is God's sign, and in Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We need not look any further. And so we really come to what I put in the notes there under a heading really, the supremacy of Christ. And it's so important for us as as Christians to have no doubt whatsoever about the supremacy, absolute supremacy of Jesus in all things. And it's printed there for you. Um, Paul's letter to the Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I think it's lovely that our worship brought some of this out this morning. Really good preparation for that. But do you see, there is nothing that Jesus did not make. There is nothing that he does not control. There is nothing that he does not sustain. It's so, so important that we understand that. So there's nothing out there in the universe that is outside of his control. Absolutely 
Nothing. At the beginning of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and we know that that term is referring to Jesus. The Word is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then beginning of the letters to the Hebrews, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And I can't emphasize this enough. There is nothing outside the control of Jesus. That he is not, he not only made things, but he sustains them and he orders them. So the planets are in their order and the things that we can't see, as the scripture says, even things that are far beyond our sight, they are still under his control. So we, we've no need to feel that these things have any influence over our lives outside of what God, through Jesus, uh, wants us to do. So... Let's ask the question, who or what do we believe determines our destiny? Either in the long term or on a day-to-day basis. What things determine your destiny? Apart from the choices that you make, I accept that. But are there things that, that you think are affecting your life that determine your destiny? We may not look at our horoscopes, but if you were like me that grew up in a non-Christian home... Um, we used to touch wood, you know, and we used to cross our fingers. And if it was something really important, you cross both hands, okay? In fact, because somehow or other we thought this was going to help the situation. Now, I don't know that my parents put a, put a lot of significance on it, but it was just like a phrase, you know. Um, yeah, we're going on holiday next week. Touch wood, you know, touch wood. It's plastic. Got t- I, must t- I must touch some wood. But it, 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 even if we don't treat it too seriously, there is something there that is saying, to do this helps to control my life in some ways or helps to, to bring me good luck in, in some respect. Right? And, um, it, it, you know, it's the, the cross fingers is the sign of the lottery, isn't it? You know, this is, you know are we, are we going to win the lottery this year or whatever? But... We may believe that that certain objects, maybe because of where they've come from or the influence they've had on them, have power and maybe particularly evil power that can affect our lives. I'm doing a David Horrell here. I have just one object in here. Right, it's soapstone, a carved head. We bought it in a market in South Africa. And they make some really lovely carvings. But this is quite soft, and when you when you scratch the surface, it turns white, and it's really good. Well, this sits on a shelf in our one of our bedrooms at home. And some years ago, um, we gave hospitality to some Christians that were travelling through. This particular guy that stayed in the room happens to be German. I think that was quite insignificant, really, but he did. And um, in the morning, this was in the corner of the room. facing the other way. Um, we, f- we discovered it after he'd gone. Now, we, obviously we're putting some interpretation on that, but for him, 
he must have felt that there was some evil influence about it, that he didn't want any chance of that affecting his life. So the best he could do, rather than throw it out the window, was to, was, was to, was to turn it away and put it in the corner. And, you know, there are little things that, that even Christians pick up on, and I think they're actually giving some credence to the fact that these things have powers and that they've got to somehow or other avoid in, in some way. Um, there are um, these days um, psychic fairs. I don't know if anybody's been to a psychic fair. You might say, oh, no, I can't go to a psychic fair. Well, many Christians do, actually. But psychic fairs are just open to anybody to have a tent or a stall, and they can sell all their psychic um, paraphernalia. And there may be um, tarot cards and, and palm reading and all the rest of it. But Christians go there, and they proclaim the gospel. They declare that Jesus is Lord. And on one occasion, the Christians had a tent, and they had a sign over it, and um, it, it drew quite a crowd. There was a, there was a queue of people outside, and what it actually said over the top was psalm reading. <laughs> and the fools thought it was palm reading. <laughs> so they got the scriptures. But I, I just say, we've no need to be afraid of objects and things like that, um, it, whatever they are, because... They're made by God, they're made by Jesus, he controls them all, and he is sovereign uh, over all things. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So, I kind of leave that question, but sometimes it's, it's purely by habit, you know, fingers crossed and touch wood or whatever. But, uh, it, just ask ourselves the question, who is in charge of our lives? Who controls our destiny, who will determine our ultimate future, is entirely Jesus. Jesus is the sign that God wants us to look to. That's the only sign. It's the only sign. Before we move on um, from the, the Magi, um, there's another thing to note, that in revealing the birth of this child to these non-Jews, God was signalling that the coming of the Messiah was not just for Jews, but for the Gentiles also, and uh, the words of Simeon kind of brought that out in his prophecy. He said, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have pre- prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for, the revelation, for revelation to the Gentiles. And although Jesus didn't spend an awful lot of time with non-Jews, um, later at the end of his life, um, after he'd, his life on earth that is, after he'd been crucified and raised from the dead. He gave instructions to his disciples to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Well, these were ruthless and perilous times, as we saw well illustrated in the video. And Herod seems to be a nasty piece of work, doesn't he? King Herod, he doesn't get a very good press, does he? But it's interesting, the background that I, I, I was able to discover that he was half Jew and half Edomite, which probably meant that he wasn't that popular with the Jews because he wasn't a pure Jew. That would have made him somewhat insecure. He was appointed by the Romans as a governor in uh, 47 BC, and I guess he did such a good job in, in keeping the, the, the peace uh, that he was made a king in 40 BC. 
But he was a puppet king and he was at the, the, the convenience of the Romans and he knew full well that just as they put him in place, they could remove him uh, at any time and that would have brought its own insecurity. He's known as Herod the Great. There are a number of Herods, but he's known as Herod the Great and there's a good reason for that. Um, he was the only ruler to maintain peace and order in the region and he built a temple in Jerusalem probably to try and gain favour with the Jews. And it was known as Herod's temple. And believe it or not, he could actually be generous on occasions. Uh, when there was a famine, um, he, it was said that he sold some of his treasures in order to feed the people. But there was a, a serious flaw in his character. And as we saw there on, on the video, he was insanely jealous and paranoid uh, uh, about who might plot against him. And the older he grew, the more suspicious he became of people. Anyone who threatened him or who he suspected were a threat to him, he eliminated them, which included um, his wife, his mother-in-law. Now, I mean, I understand, you know, why you people want to get rid of their mother. But as the, jo- as the joke goes, I, my mother-in-law's in a home now, but she was great, you know, no complaints. But, but um, he got rid of some of the Sanhedrin, and he killed three of his sons. So, and this was all through fear that he would lose his position. And it was the emperor Augustus that said it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. <laughs> so you can imagine how he felt when news reached him that a king had been born. And it, the scripture says that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Well, he had a reputation regarding his rivals and they feared what lengths he might do to root out um, this king and uh, and to eliminate him. And of course, their fears were founded um, when we see the the end of that chapter where Herod has uh, these babies killed. Um, And, uh, you know, all that they were concerned about, their fears were realised. So if we look at fear and insecurity in Herod, um, it caused him to disregard the true significance of what was happening. Just think about it. If he'd only just taken a look at what was happening, uh, if he'd had been in his right mind, he might have acted differently. Um, we could say that the cosmos, you know, the heavens announced that there was going to be a king. That it was that significant. Um, Herod knew that it was the Christ. Um, he said, you know, he called the wise men, the uh, scribes and people together to say, you know, where is the Christ to be born? He knew it was the Christ. And yet, he, he's prepared to go against God. And, um, you know, he, to go against God, to oppose God, uh, was just utter foolishness because God was not going to allow his son at this point uh, to be killed by Herod. God protected his son from the dangers uh, by communication to Joseph in a dream. God speaks to people in different ways. Joseph had three dreams. He had a dream before the baby was born to say, don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife, to be your wife. And he said who this baby was going to be. And there were two dreams he had regarding keeping uh, Jesus safe uh, whilst Herod was on the rampage. And what we see here is problems of fear and insecurity. And even in our own lives, We know if we are insecure in some ways, and there may be various reasons for that, and that there is fear, it can cause 
us to behave in particular ways that are not always helpful. But as you look at Israel's history, the history of Israel's history of Israel's kings is riddled with treachery and murder. It's a it's a terrible picture when you look at some of the kings. And lust for power overrules all moral and spiritual judgments. And of course, we've had modern examples of those in the last century, in the 20th century. I've listed a few people from Hitler to Saddam Hussein, um, that these people are absolutely ruthless in getting rid of their rivals. Any suspicion of treachery, and if you read anything about Saddam Hussein, apart from the things that have been in in the news, you'll see how he acted towards those he was suspicious, even people that were close to him. If he had any suspicion, then he, he eliminated them very cruelly, awfully. So uh, the problems of fear and insecurity. I feel I need really to, to draw to a close. So what? We, there's some interesting things in this story uh, regarding uh, astrology and how we relate to that. But there are three possible responses to Jesus that we, we see here. The first is from Herod, and that was um, hatred and hostility. Uh, all he wanted to do was to get rid of Jesus for all sorts of reasons. And what we find is that Jesus is still hated and persecuted through his church around the world. Jesus himself was, was hated eventually um, by the authorities, and that's why he was put to death, even though it was God's plan and purpose. And right through history, Christians have been persecuted in one way or another. And as this term of the year, there will be many of our brothers and sisters who are in prison just because they are Christians, just because they have acclaimed Jesus to be their Lord and Saviour. And the scripture says that we, we need to identify with them. And we, we do from time, we have done from time to time to, to remember them and to pray for them. But let's remember that as the gospel is preached around the world, it isn't always welcomed by those communities. And people become Christians at great cost, incredible cost. So there is still hatred and hostility towards Jesus. Then we have the chief priests and teachers of the law. There was a degree of indifference here. They are the experts. They knew the law. They knew the prophets like the back of their hand. And yet they are, they have, there is no response to Jesus whatsoever. They knew the things academically, but there was nothing in their hearts uh, regarding Jesus. There was an indifference. And later on, the same group of people Jesus addresses in John's Gospel. And he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And it's possible to be an academic, to know the scriptures. And there have been actually notable theologians who've had no conversion experience whatsoever. They are just technical people um, who think they understand and examine the scriptures, but they haven't uh, had a personal encounter with the one who is there displayed in the scriptures. And, you know, even though we would say that's that's not our position, we, we know the Lord of the scriptures. I'm just aware myself that I can, I can just read the scripture without having a real expectation that God is going to speak to me. You know, I might read the scriptures daily, and sometimes I get to the end of it and I think, God, I read that, and I, I don't know how much expectation I had that you were actually going to speak to me. 
I didn't actually ask you at the beginning and when I started to read this, God, this is your word. Will you speak to me through this? Will you show me more about Jesus in it? And so that's something that we can do, even though we would say we are those who know Jesus, uh, that we need to say God is still speaking to us through his word and we must not just treat it and say, well, I've, I've done the passage for today, I've read my bit for today, I've done my duty. No, we need to believe that God is going to speak to us. And then there are the Magi, and they come with adoring worship. What we find, they were not spectators. They didn't come to, to, to just to, to gawk, as it were, at the, at the, at the baby. They, they came with a real intention to worship. They were prepared to worship. You know, and I think we all know that when we come together on a Sunday morning, it's quite easy to be a spectator, even if we don't do that intentionally. And I know myself... I've got partway through the worship and I think my mind's been elsewhere. I've, you know, I've been thinking of other things. And I've, I've really not, in my heart, come prepared to worship. But they came prepared to worship. They brought gifts uh, that were a, a fit for a king. And they travelled a long way in order uh, to, to, to make this pilgrimage to worship uh, the one who had been indicated in the stars. And it's so important. And um, the scripture has already been read to us. Um, but this is a version that isn't the NIV. I don't know which version it is, but I'll have to look when I get home. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, it says, it must be an inclusive version, uh, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So we're to offer our lives. Worship is more about our lives than it is perhaps about what we do here on a Sunday morning. It's more than singing the songs. It's the choices that we make in life as to whether we put Jesus first in the things of life. That is our worship. So let's not be spectators, but let's be true worshippers, a worship that affects our whole lives. And we bring to God our lives. We offer our lives to God. This is the offering that we bring to him. So we're here at the beginning of a new year and uh, there's already been reference made to that and Fred very helpfully prayed for us concerning uh, the the, the problems that maybe people have had during this past year and now this is a new year. And people who are not Christians seem to see some significance, don't they, in the change of the year. Actually, it's only a mark on the calendar, but they seem to think it's perhaps an opportunity for a fresh start. We're, we're going to you know, not do the things that we shouldn't have done last year. We're not going to do them again. And we're going to achieve some things that we failed to achieve last year. And they make what they call New Year's resolutions. Many, of course, uh, get broken. And maybe we've done the same. But as Christians, we have a unique opportunity for a fresh start. God is the God of fresh starts. Always. It's always available to us. But God says you don't have to let the past dog your future because your mistakes of the past, what we might call sin, has been dealt with and can be dealt with as you confess your sin. That God has dealt with our sin. And God says you don't have to take the burden of that into the new year. I've cleansed you through the blood of Jesus. I've made you to to be um, someone who can stand in my presence and walk into this new year free of condemnation and with a clear conscience. This is the amazing thing about being Christian. So let's make sure that as we enter this year, 
that if, if there are some things we've got to deal with regarding things in the past with God, if we've got to put some things right with God by means of confession, let's make sure we do it. So we enter this new year on clear ground. God gives us that invitation. He says, come and, and, and have your sins forgiven and, and move ahead with a clear conscience. And through God's grace, um, God will do that. And we need to have a confidence that God's grace that was with us for that will be with us uh, through the coming year. So as we face this year, let's make sure, um, more than even maybe than we have in the past, that we keep Jesus to be central and supreme. He is the creator, the sustainer of all things and put our trust thoroughly in him and to be worshippers in, in everyday life, in everything that we do. May God help us in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our Christian life is not just dependent on the memory of that wonderful time when Jesus came into the world, what we call the incarnation. Father, we thank you that our lives are now hidden in Christ with you. Dear Father, we thank you that our lives are protected and secure in you. And Lord, we ask you and we pray that you will help us to live lives, our lives in the light of that with the confidence, Lord, that you are sovereign in all our dealings and in all the things that affect our lives. And Father, we ask you too that by your grace you will help us, Lord, to put behind us the things uh, that have been unhelpful and Lord look to you for the future and to trust in your future grace that we may live to the praise of your glory. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.